Welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. Uh, I'm excited, as I almost always say at the beginning of each episode, but more so, um, I have Tom Goodwin. Hello there. He's the EVP Head of Innovation at Zenith. Uh, we have been trying to coordinate this for a while, which is another thing I feel like I say frequently at the top of these episodes. <laughs> Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for making time. I know what your calendar is like. Just uh, it's got to be it's got to be hectic just from us trying to schedule this. I got a sense of it, and I'm terrified. In, it's in a very exciting way. I think um, <laughs> life is sometimes about creating good problems. So when you know that people want to speak to you and they care about what you think, um, that's the best possible situation you can ever create in life. So um, it does mean that I have to frequently apologize for being a pain there. <laughs> Are you an optimist in general? I am actually. I think. Um, you know, the weird thing about social media is it tends to kind of not necessarily reflect on reality. So I think my grumpy tweets sort of tend to perform better and more people see them. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm an extremely lucky sort of privileged um, person who is extremely grateful for everything. And I am also optimistic. Uh, a lot of my job is about looking into the future and seeing how things are changing. And there is enough stuff that um, sort of causes me concern as well. Um, so it's, um, it's a very interesting time that we're on this planet at, at the moment. Yeah, it sure is. Now, before we get onto our topic, yeah. which, um, is going to be a really good one. I wanted you to give, uh, people just a quick rundown of your, your role and how you got to be uh, head of innovation and, and a little bit about what that entails. Cause I think that's a little bit outside the norm as far as what yeah. a lot of people in strategy are doing. Yeah, let me try and make this punchy and, and different and not saying the same crap I say all the time. Uh, I mean, my, <laughs> thank you. I think my role is it's kind of about having better conversations with our clients, I guess. I feel like there are a lot of people in the world of marketing and business that are quite scared. And I think they, um, they kind of need advice. Um, and that advice doesn't necessarily mean some 60 year old that's old and wise and understands everything. It can be a 38 year old that's not afraid to ask questions and not afraid to admit when they don't know everything. And that's kind of me. Um, so I go into our clients and I try to have different sorts of conversations with them. So maybe it's about the future of retail. Maybe it's about, you know, how to reach younger people. Uh, maybe it's destroying some concepts that are kind of eating our industry, like this obsession with talking about millennials and crap like that. Um, but generally speaking, <laughs> I'm there to sort of, I mean, ideally sort of have good conversations, ideally add value, and then ideally do something about it. That That's proven to be the hardest thing. Like it, it's quite easy to have a profound conversation um, for our wonderful clients to realize that there are other things that they can do. Um, it's just quite hard sometimes putting that into practice. Yeah, um, and how I mean, do I get here? At a media company, too, you're in the middle of it all. I mean, at Zenith, you get to touch all the agencies and kind of influence it all. from. So there's real opportunity to make an impact from an innovation standpoint. It's not just talk. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing to talk about who has the power these days. Um, you know, I grew up mainly in creative agencies where we always felt like we had the power. Um, I don't think it's true to say that because the money lies with the media agencies that we have the power now, but we certainly have... Um, we have a chance to have a seat at the table. And I think um, I'm quite lucky in my writing and my sort of general um, sort of loudness that quite often I'm able to get seats at tables and, and sort of start these conversations. And quite often I have sort of cultural permission to be sort of provocative, um, but nice about it at the same time. Um, I know you put, I, mean, 
I know you put this in your book, but but having an English accent is actually extremely helpful. One, because people think you're smarter than you actually are, which is always going to be good. But two, people probably think you're being more polite. Um, so you can kind of, you know, paraphrase questions like, what on earth are you doing? Um, and people still think you're this sort of mild-mannered guy <laughs> from the middle of England. <laughs> if you sort of say that true. with a kind of West Coast accent, people think you're an asshole. So. Yeah, no, it's true. I'm going to start faking an English accent. <laughs> it's all you it's all you need. Do you want me to say how I got here as well, or is that just a bit self-indulgent and boring now? No, no, I, I would love to hear it, and I think the audience would love to hear. Um, <laughs> did, did you come up through as a planner, or did you come up on the account side or, or creative side? Where, where I've done lots started? of... I've, I've just been a bit weird most of my career, to be honest. I've just been quite unusual. Um, it would be easy for me to be horribly smug about this whole thing and to act like it was this genius plan, and it would be easy for there to be a bit of survivorship bias where I somehow say this as if it's just as simple as following these steps and everything will be great for you as well. Um, I think I've had a lot of luck. But generally speaking, I worked in uh, client side at the very first part of my career. Um, then I went to creative agencies. Then I went to digital agencies. And then I went to media agencies. Uh, most of my life, I've kind of been like 50% sort of in planning and strategy, but never really properly um, and sort of 30 percentish in sort of account handling and looking after clients and being their contacts. And then also with quite a lot of new business sort of thrown in at the same time. Um, but I've just sort of wandered around and, and sort of generally found where I can be most helpful and, and been sort of lucky to have places that took me on where I can add the most value rather than where I'm, you know, rather than trying to sort of turn me into something which is more normal and probably I'd be crap at. Right. And last question about your about your background. So yeah. jumping from creative agencies, digital agencies, media agencies, what was it a specific thing at each time that you were saying, oh, I'll, I'll, this is a good opportunity to do this? Or were you chasing a string? Or was it just kind of, oh, this is the next <laughs> thing, I'm going to go try it? Uh, it's been different at different points. I think there was a sense when I was working for creative agencies in about 2009, you felt a little bit like the sort of the best party was happening next door and that, that party and that house was actually the digital house. Um, so I sort of moved as it felt like they were having more interesting conversations. Um, yeah. For someone in advertising, I'm sort of particularly rude about advertising and I don't necessarily feel as proud to be in advertising as I'd like to. So everything that we do that encompasses understanding people and understanding business models and coming up with ideas that manifest themselves in a sort of advertising-ish way. I like that stuff. So, you know, the chance to make an app that made it easier to browse your supermarket or the chance to create a better check-in experience with the airline or a chance to, um, you know, find a holiday more easily. Like all, all that stuff that's about helping people I've, I've found really, really um, wonderful to work on. And increasingly that's kind of away from advertising agencies and it's more in, in these sort of other areas. That's great. That's a, that's a good background and I'm going to let you off the hook. Uh <laughs> describing your <laughs> describing your background, I can tell you're you you must get asked these questions a lot. Um, no, I'm fine talking about. It. I just feel it just feels a bit obnoxious. Really, it's quite easy to sound smug about this stuff, and you know, oh, I went to America because people wanted me to come here. You know, like, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I got a pay rise. Um, I just think it's. Um, you know, I've, <laughs> I think um, if this is going to turn into any sort of advice, and I'm not entirely sure that I'm best place to give advice, then I think this notion of knowing when to focus and when to go broad, 
um, always being sort of curious and reading things and sort of chasing further knowledge and developing skills. I think that's, if there's one thing that I can quite confidently say from my sort of career, um, it's that that's been really helpful. Yeah, that, that is great advice and great, um, in practice as well. I can yeah. say that too. It's like know when to dive in and say, Oh yeah, I'm going to pay attention to this and really learn it and master it. And then yes. I'm going to let this one go by. No, exactly. I think saying no is massively underrated actually. Like, um, again, as part of this whole measurableness that I sometimes project, I actually feel like my job is often to say no to stuff because it's not really going to make a difference. Um, and I think having, again, not, not even joking, having the English accent, but also having quite a lot of experience now in the industry, I don't feel like I need to chase everything. I don't feel like, you know, I'm going to look like an idiot unless I've made a chatbot this year. Um, and I think saying no to stuff that is a distraction that won't make a difference is actually a key part of every job. And what, I see that a lot too, where brands or agencies are chasing a technology that they want to execute. They want to do a chatbot yeah. or, you know, five years ago it was everything needed in an iOS app. Uh, <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you think that's a real thing that people, I feel like I see it and observe it, but I don't, I hope that really isn't happening out in the world. Do you, do you think that's happening? Oh, absolutely everywhere. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, so sad. Yeah. And, it, and it's not like a, it's not that 2018 is the time where we're doing it and we're doing it with voice. It's that every year since about 2009, this has been the case. So at one point, it would have been an app. Then it would have been a web app. At one point, it would have been, um, you know, some social media strategy about starting conversations. Another point, it would have been an <laughs> AR experience. Then it was a VR experience. And then it was an AR experience again. Then it was QR codes, you know. Um, then it's shoppable TV ads. So there's always sort of technology du jour. And um, at my most rude, and I don't really mean this, but it's as if someone's on a kind of a Delta flight and in the magazine, uh, there's an article about how QR codes are going to change everything and the CEO reads it and then they sort of send an email to their marketing department going, why, why have we not done this yet? Um, yeah. And then you basically <laughs> get a brief, which is, you know, we need to keep our boss happy. Please, can we do this really stupid thing? Um, yeah, and it's not that it's yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not that this technology isn't amazing. I mean, QR codes are fantastic. Um, the ability to create some augmented reality experiences will be game-changing for some industries. Um, chatbots are great for some situations. Um, so I'm not miserable about technology. I'm miserable about us being technology-centric rather than um, business challenge-centric. I 100% agree. 100%. So. That's great. great. Okay. Uh, I want to... I want to move into our topic and I, the, yeah, so we were yeah. just talking, you were saying you felt it might be a little self-indulgent. So we're, now we're going to talk about your book. So <laughs> I the, the irony, the irony, but we're not going to talk about your book uh, yeah. as a dissection of the concept. So I am yeah. off the top going to say, yeah. um, I've heard amazing things about digital Darwinism, uh, your new book. I have not yet read it. I have to admit that now I just have a stack of books um, and it's on the pile. <laughs> no worries. Uh, I'm going I'm to test you on it. <laughs> But we were chatting about uh, the, the idea of the strategy behind putting together a book and what yeah. all goes into it and how it all touches. And for listeners, um, Tom mentioned my book. And what's really funny is that from from my distant uh contact with Tom, I saw him as he was preparing to put together a book and he was making comments like, oh, this would make a great idea for, you know, a shorter format would be good for a book or this would be good for a book. And I was keeping those notes and saying, oh yeah, that's a good idea. 
uh, and I was able to execute the book because we published independently. Um, and then Tom got into the publishing world and he had a different experience. So this, this should be a good way to compare notes here. Um, and I yeah. want to hear from Tom overall, like what was the biggest thing you learned through the process of, of putting this book together? <laughs> so many things. Um, I like how you describe how you're with me throughout the whole book, because it makes me feel like you sort of witnessed my mental breakdown. Um, <laughs> now I think, um, I mean, the, the weird thing about writing a book is everything that you do next appears to be the hardest thing you've ever done. Um, so getting the book deal appears to be like the the ultimate in difficulty and that things are going to be easier after that. And actually writing it is harder. And uh, writing the first page is actually easier than writing the last page. Um, and then you get all sorts of questions from the publisher and fact checking and are you sure you're right? And I think you're an idiot for thinking this. So you get all sorts of doubt that comes in at that stage and lots of boring work to do with research. And then just when you're kind of smug about the whole thing and you can sort of drink champagne and, and feel like a published author, you then have to promote the, the bloody thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which has actually been the hardest thing because you just feel yes. like a complete dickhead the whole time. Just You just feel like a horrible person that just goes around, you know, basically saying, give me money, spend time in my brain. And I think that's um, that's a horrible feeling. It's it's very hard for people to get, but it is a, it's a weird kind of guilt that you feel when someone yeah. when you say, "Hey, let's talk about my book." I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. you're, kind of, you're kind of that asshole that's like, "Hey, yeah. let's talk more about me." I mean, you're pretty interesting, but did you know I wrote a book? Want to yeah. hear about it? Yeah, no, it's all very strange. I mean, I'm extremely without sounding smug. I'm extremely glad that I had a publisher throughout this whole process because I never would have done it. But if nothing else, it's because um, it's sort of given me a bit of confidence that it might be worth promoting. And it's given me a bit of validation and a bit of reassurance. And I kind of feel that when I am being an ass about it and promoting it, it's called Digital Darwinism, by the way, um, <laughs> available from all good bookstores. Um, I feel like when I'm <laughs> saying things like that, it's kind of okay because that's what I'm supposed to do. Like That's what my publisher you know, sort of paid me to do. Um, so it's not really me doing this. It's just me sort of reluctantly carrying out my employment with them. Well, there's nothing wrong with, with promoting the book, but that's the crazy part is we put it in our head that there's something wrong with it or we feel guilty about it. But um, yeah, I mean, I also, I have this huge problem with this idea of, um, sort of thought leadership and personal brands. And I do quite a lot of tweeting, but it's normally like a stream of consciousness rather than anything strategic. So when you do realize that you've got a book and that you should probably have some sort of marketing plan and that you should probably, you know, orchestrate tweets at particular times. Um, I don't know. I just, I just feel like there's something sort of very um, one way and slightly sort of abusive about turning your Twitter feed into that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I'm probably just very English and very strange about the whole thing, but it just, it seems kind of riddled with things that are on the edge of being quite unpleasant for a British person to do. No, I, I totally am tracking with you. So let's talk about the, the strategy for, like, how did you approach, so you got a publishing deal um, yeah. and you said you're committing to writing this book. How did you start, you know, what was your, before you wrote, did you do an outline or did you know what the book was going to be? Did you have an abstract for it or how did you start the entire ball rolling? Yeah, I maybe this is not a very wise thing to be completely honest about, but I'll tell you like in all <laughs> honesty what happened. And I sure. don't know um, how it comes across, but um, for about four years, people occasionally say, oh, Tommy, you should really write a book. And then each time that would happen, I'd sort of laugh it off awkwardly. And then it kind of built to a point about a year ago where actually about 
five times a week people were saying you should write a book i had no interest in writing a book um the idea was horrific to me i don't read many books i don't like books that much like my head is completely optimized to the age of 140 characters or 280 whatever it is now um <laughs> So, so it was kind of, you know, bubbling away in the back of my mind for quite a long time that apparently the world might be interested in a book, um, but I didn't like the idea. Then a sort of um, a publishing agent came to me and said, I think you'd write a great book. Uh, my first reaction was to think he was some sort of fraudster that was going to ask me for money to represent him, and then he was going to sort of disappear off to Mexico or something. Um, <laughs> but... Um, so I researched him. I couldn't find anything about him at all, but I met him and he was, he was a, a very sort of um, wise and mature man from the world of publishing who basically said, yeah, I think, um, <laughs> I feel like I should dramatize this. I should say that he had a cigar in his mouth and he said, I'm going to make you a star. Um, but, but that's not, that's not what he did at all. He, we sat and we had a cup of coffee in Starbucks and he said, I think you've got a book in you. Um, so then he said, write the first three chapters and then I'll take it around, uh, various publishers. And I said, no, I can't do that. Cause I don't really know how to do that. And I don't have to any time. Uh, so I agreed no, to write. Do you, yeah. do you write in long form? Like, have you, do you blog? Do you write? Have you ever written these kind of longer form pieces or was that even the, the first three chapters Did that sound like a horror show to you? Uh, I've got quite good at writing 800 to 1,000 words. I've probably been published about 400 times with 1,000 words. Um, okay, so blog blog post length or article length? Yeah. I mean, the weird thing is that's actually an extremely different um, writing construct. Um, like, I've never made films or recorded music before, but for me, it's it's almost like the difference between photography versus making a film or something, where it's quite easy to have one idea that runs through a 1,000-word piece, and it's very um, approachable to sit down and to whack out a 1,000 words in an hour or something, whereas to sort of realize that you've got, um, you know, like 10 hours of someone's time and that you need to make it worth their time, and you need to have a sort of narrative that gives it structure. Like, it's a very different exercise. Um, I, I was lucky in that when I said no to writing the first three chapters, um, as obnoxious as that sounds, they sent, they then said, well, why don't you write an outline and we'll make decisions based on that. So I kind of created this outline, which I guess if you're doing a painting or something, this became the kind of the pencil sketch. Um, and it's that at that stage, the sort of act of, of spending a weekend doing that, that I realized that I did probably have enough in the way of ideas. And I probably did know where I wanted to sort of start people off and take people um, and at that point, the whole thing became quite manageable. Um, so that sort of got shopped around various different publishers and various different ones wanted it. And there was lots of, of sort of back and, and forwards. And then I agreed to write it. Um, and then that's were you, kind of, Tom, were you yeah. surprised that you could, were you surprised when you finished the outline and you realize like, oh, I do have a lot of ideas. I do. I think I have a direction for this. Were you um, kind of like, oh, I didn't realize I had that. Or were you just like, oh, I, okay, I did that. What's the next step? Yeah, um, I mean, in all honesty, I wasn't surprised that I had lots of ideas. I was surprised that I could fit them into a structure that made sense. Um, so when I kind of rather obnoxiously say that I don't like books, it, it's often because I feel like most books are really one or two ideas that someone has kind of inflated enough to make the book heavy enough so it becomes the sort of physical construct that is the book. And I often yep. feel like authors that maybe have 10 ideas rather than making one book with all 10 ideas, they just make 10 books and then they can make 10 times more money and 10 times more speaking gigs. So I get, I get quite annoyed about the selfishness that authors show. 
um, so, so more than anything else, I was pleased that I could um, probably get the right balance between the number of ideas and the sort of density of information without just feel like I'm sort of ramming stuff pe- down people's throats. Um, and in retrospect, I'm quite surprised at how similar the book stayed to that original outline. That's pretty cool. And so uh, one of the things that you had said early on, when uh, not early on for you, but early on before I had thought of even writing a book, I, I think you said this a couple of years ago on Twitter, you said, why are biz- business books so h- thick when... Uh, it's really one idea. It can be so much shorter and an easy read that people would breeze through. And I bookmark that in my mind of just, yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah. I always end up buying these books and I read halfway through it. And I'm like, didn't yeah. you already write this chapter three times in this book? And I'm on chapter four. Yeah. I mean, it's very, um, it's very strange to me. Like, um, you know, I, I imagine your average listener is going to be fairly successful. And therefore, their average hourly rate is going to be, you know, 50, 100, $150, $200 per hour. And probably a typical book takes, you know, maybe 10 hours to read or something. So when we think that we pay $15 for a book, I mean, we're actually paying $150, $500 for a book with our time. I know that sounds like a very strange way to think about life, but, but, but genuinely, if it, is, if it is a business book, um, you know, there is a degree to which it's sort of work. Um, and it just sort of struck me as very odd that you can't buy like a 1000 page book for $1 and a kind of, um, you know, 10 page version of the same book for $100, because actually it'd be way more um, effective to sort of have the second one. Um, but I think it's a bit like sort of music, you know, this need to sort of produce albums and the need to sort of bundle it into something that's bigger and more physical. I think we have the same thing in the world of books. Yeah, well, I, that's absolutely true. It's a, like any other product, right? It becomes something that is just for sale, and how do we monetize it? How do we get the yeah. most out of it? Yeah, I mean, but, one other thing that's quite interesting, which um, I've not told anyone before about about my book, um, is I wrote it in quite a strange way. In that, um, I think most people they kind of write a book and they kind of take extracts from it, and those become articles which promote the book, and then they send out tweets that then link people to those articles. Uh, so it's like a sort of pyramid structure. Mine's almost like a sort of diamond. And again, like this wasn't me being particularly smart. This was just how it ended up being, where I basically, I'm always writing tweets, and sometimes people seem to find them interesting, and they retweet them. And then when that happens, I tend to think, mm, maybe there's like an article there. Um, so I've sort of used my tweets to then write articles. Um, I mean, this is all much more... Um, subjective and creative and random than this sounds but the general dynamic has been to then write articles then when I'm asked to do sort of speaking gigs around the world I tend to kind of collect some of the thoughts from those articles and you can see in real time it's a bit like being a really crap stand-up comedian where you can kind of see what resonates with people <laughs> yeah. you can kind of you, you get, get the real, feedback right away yeah, no, you, you literally get real-time feedback of you know one minute you're talking about how in the 1990s you had cassettes and you had to spin them around on a pencil to rewind them and everyone's in hysterics and and sort of paying attention and the next minute you're talking about how exciting uh, the Dyson vacuum cleaner was and everyone looks bored and they check their phones um, so you, you kind of you, you kind of get real-time feedback on what's interesting so kind of based on like a, a four-year process of just using all this material and seeing what people like I then was able to sort of feel my way through this book and to sort of expand on some of the articles that have done well um, and then now I guess in theory I should then do the, the triangular thing of, of sort of promoting it with the same techniques as other people do. But yeah, it, it makes my, um, my book potentially quite different in how it's made to other people's. 
and you, you say, say that the, the diamond shape, you mean it starts with and ends with Twitter? Is that what the... I guess so, yeah. That? Yeah, we should tell Twitter that. Maybe they'll, they'll sponsor my next one. <laughs> I bet you could probably work that out. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of Twitter, actually. But anyway. I, I am too. I, I'm actually... Uh, I'm kind of trying to recover from Twitter. I'm on it too much. Yeah. Uh, and But it is it has fueled just about every guest of this show, so I yeah. should probably not complain about it. Yeah. How does my process compare with yours? Like, what was, or, or, are we not supposed to be talking about your book? Um, uh, we could talk about it. It's not. It's not a secret. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have a, someone in the uh, in the Starbucks to talk me into it. So yeah. I just kind of got the idea, and I didn't know if I could do it. Same as you, or or I thought I could do it, but I didn't know if I had the, the content for a book. Yeah. And then I really, I wrote the outline and then I just started skinning the outline, just dumping content into different parts. And, um, did you, I started by writing short, just expanding the outline and making the outline just longer and longer with sentence fragments and ideas and links. And then I went back and really just the words just kind of poured out once it got to a point where I said, Oh, this outline's pretty much done. Yeah. Um, the, the words just kind of came pouring out, but I didn't have an editor look at it until I completed a draft or at least everything except the conclusion. I, I wrote the final chapter well after it had been edited a couple times. So, um, okay, that makes sense. Did you have somebody checking in periodically and giving you notes or were you free to yeah, write did, or yeah. how did it shape? Yeah, I mean, my publisher was actually very good and that they were kind of, um, they're a bit like stabilizers on a bike where the idea was that you don't really need to use them, but they're there if, if you need. Uh, and I mean, they, one, they sort of gave me belief that I'm not an idiot for trying to write a book. Um, two, they would have sort of periodic check-ins and the fact that you knew there was going to be a check-in meant that you just had to get the work done. But there would also be times when they would realize that they can't force these things. So they, they would give me more space. Um, but I, I, I would go so far as to say if I didn't have a publisher, there would have been 10 different reasons why this book didn't work uh, and didn't happen. Um, not least just the complete inability to actually force it out of my brain. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't, it sounds like you found it much, much, much easier than I did to write a book. Um, so I, I think maybe some people are just better at this than others. No, if I could compare though, I mean, your book, I think you're putting forward a new, uh, a new approach and a new theory that's based on past construct. But yeah. my book is more of a, like here's tools that already exist and I'm repackaging them in a way that people have just forgotten about them and why yeah. they're, they're good tools and all you. So yeah. in a way mine was easier to write because uh, I wasn't imagining, you know, uh, I wasn't forecasting anything. It was really like, Hey, you're happy. You, we haven't been using these tools, but they, they exist already and they make sense. Let me just remind you about that. Yeah. I don't know why I feel the need to say this because it's disgusting, but for me, writing a book was a bit like having a dump in that there were times <laughs> <laughs> there were times when you'd just be in a bar having a conversation to someone and you're thinking, oh my God, I really need to go to the loo now. Um, and, yeah, and, you, yes. and you would sort of get out your phone and you'd sort of speak into it and, and express some ideas. Um, and then there were just weeks of like constipation where you're like, I don't even think I can do anything now. Um, so yeah. the art is to sort of know when you're able to pass fecal matter and when you're not. I wrote an entire chapter in the hotel room at Disneyland <laughs> with my family. We, we came back from the park and my kids like were calm and taking a nap. And yeah. I just was like, Oh, I have this idea. And I yeah. wrote an entire chapter, you know, and it was that you're exactly right. It's just, Oh, I got the urge. I better go do this. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for all the listeners that are eating at the moment. 
You are not the only person to compare my book to Shaq, so <laughs> we're good. Um, hey, uh, you mentioned audience, and you mentioned kind of this hourly uh, math of you know figuring out people's rates and figuring out the value of their yeah. time. And I've had uh, Ferris on, and he's a big uh, he's a big proponent of figuring out the math on people's attention. Yeah. But how much were you, how much were you thinking about the audience when you were writing it? Were you thinking about what would delight them and what would make sense? Or were, was it just kind of in the back of your mind, I better make yeah. this valuable and rewriting it with that pressure to deliver something good? Yeah, that, I mean, that's an extremely good and important question. Um, I actually thought about them a lot. I think, um, again, that's how the publisher helped me and that they made it clear that, you know, from the, there was no reason for this book to exist. You know, no, no one is put on this planet and they, they have a book in them and they have to. You have to sort of earn the right um, to write a book and you have to be incredibly mindful of what you're trying to say, but also who you're trying to say it to. Um, so I guess it kind of it helps if you come from a marketing background because the whole time you are trying to imagine, you know, if you are a 45-year-old CEO, CEO of a you know, printing plant in Germany, you know, is this interesting to you? If you're an 18-year-old uh, girl that's just graduating, um, what's in it for you? And I think getting the focus between depth and width and and sort of uh, technical um, prowess, that, that was almost the sort of big thing that I was trying to get. Because you can easily make it a very big and wide book, but not contain enough to really provide any meaning to anyone. And it's also quite easy to do a deep dive into one particular area, and then lots of people don't find it very interesting. Um, so I tried to get that balance. Um, I've been slightly offended, I think, in some of the reviews where people have said, um, it's a great book, beautifully written, pleasure to read, didn't really learn anything that new from it. Because um, it kind of makes me feel like maybe I should have put a bit more stuff in it. But did you have... Yeah, re don't read the reviews. Like That's one piece of advice <laughs> I could give you right off. That's not going to help you. Um, did you... Did you have like a persona that you were writing for? I mean, is it written for CTOs or CMOs or is it written for yeah, planners? They, uh, they made me do that. Um, and I kind of got out of it slightly by saying here are three different groups of people. Um, so the sort of primary audience is a kind of, you know, leadership position um, of, of some nature within either a large or a small company. So maybe the CEO of a hundred person company, uh, maybe the CTO of a thousand person company, maybe even the chief marketing officer of a massive company, or maybe hopefully one day the CEO of a massive company. But those were the sort of primary audience. But to be written as something that they might read on a beach on holiday and not think of as work, but just think of as sort of tonally linked to their career. Then the sort of right. secondary so target. It's, it's yeah. meant to be, you meant it to be kind of leisurely and, and like, easy to read without having to have a PhD and, you know, really yes. focus with a desk. Yeah, on it. yeah. And to not feel like work, you know, I don't, I didn't want anyone to sort of dread picking it up. You know, I wanted this to sort of feel like a nice salad rather than a sort of big pile of cabbage. Um, <laughs> but I still wanted there to be sustenance in it. I didn't want it to be a big, um, and then the second group of people were just general people in the sort of marketing sphere of sort of any seniority. And then I was sort of quite aware of, you know, I thought about people like my sister or my mum and dad or people from school that have got nothing to do with marketing at all. And I just thought, how could I write something that they might find sort of quite interesting as well? What kind of response have you gotten from non-marketers? 
Uh, I mean, actually, a very good one. I mean, people, it's quite awkward talking about it, but people say it's just really nice to read. They say it's quite funny and quite gentle and quite approachable and interesting. Um, yeah, that's Yeah, good. I think so. Yeah, it's... um. It's quite odd when you. I mean, if that's if that's what you were going for, if someone came back and said it was funny, and you're like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> I mean, again, <laughs> I mean, I can't really emphasize the degree to which I was originally quite reluctant about writing a book. So, to some extent, um, you know, this is not going to be the sort of backbone of my career. Like, my ambition is not that I write this book and I spend the rest of my life writing books or talking about this book. It was a thing that I did extremely, um, that took a lot of my time and that I took very seriously, um, but it was still the sort of side project that was there as a kind of, you know, let's see what happens and if people like it, then that will make me feel happy, but there's no sort of commercial imperative behind it. So, Right. Did you, so you had an audience and you obviously, you have a strong voice, you know, Tom Goodwin, the person, you're not afraid to voice your opinion, you have a great yeah. sense of humor. Did you have trouble channeling that onto the page or was it, I'm just going to write what's in my head and my voice is going to come out and it's going to sound like me and that's, that's what I want. Or were you trying to sound, did you try to have a different tone that was somehow translated into book form? Yeah, no, the beautiful thing about all of the stuff I do is there's, there's, there's no thought behind it. Like I'm just me. Um, like I mainly get <laughs> into trouble for being me and the next day I think, Oh my God, what an idiot for saying that because I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so smart or strategic enough to think, oh, is this useful to my career? You know, is it sensible to criticize banking when one of our biggest clients is one of the world's biggest banks? Um, I tend to be quite stupid about this stuff. Um, but yeah, there, there's zero part of me that sits down and they think, oh, what's the Tom Goodwin voice here? Like, how do I get the tonality of being curious but also provocative on this page? Uh, now I just have a, you know, you know, without carrying on the, the dump analogy, I mean, I basically just, produce this stuff and it comes out of me and it's my material and that is how I am and um, I, we live in this horrible age of the personal brand and I actually think what well, we really have are personalities um, so if people have a strong personality and they are funny then great but that has to be the sort of output of them being who they are rather than some sort of desired takeout that people have after meeting them um, I don't, I don't yeah. think I'm especially funny I just think I don't really care that much um, and, it, and it sort of comes across in my writing a little bit. Well, something else that you said, um, I said, I told you you were smart and you said, you replied, well, I don't know if I'm smart as much as I'm lucky enough to have the time to think about stuff. Yeah. And you think that's true? Uh, I think so. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, like talking about smartness is quite odd because you get quite introspective and then it makes you go nuts. Um, I don't yeah. really... <laughs> I think um, there's some sort of quote that I can't remember because if I was particularly smart, I would be able to remember it. Um, but I think when you speak to creative people about being creative, they get quite embarrassed because for them, it's just how they are. Um, you know, so whether it's the thing they're doing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe it's a Steve Jobs quote or something, or, or even um, you know, artists. Um, you know, there are lots of people who work in the field of art, and it's just like how their fingers move. Um, and if you were to try and get them to sort of explain it, they can't really explain how they 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 are kind of able to do that um so i think um I'm, there must be something a little bit smart about me because i did all right at school um and i seem to sort of write pieces that people find quite interesting and i've never had that many people tell me that i'm stupid but more than anything else i think i've got a couple of things that are very lucky um at my disposal one is um my sort of job allows me to travel quite freely 
And I think a lot of the things that I have access to um, and a lot of the dots that I'm able to join together come from that ability to travel. Um, I think access to really remarkable people is something that people don't think about enough. So whether it's the ability to sort of sit down with TED speakers and, and find out more about their areas um, or sort of phone up a specialist in blockchain and know that they might take my call. I think that's another thing that I've got um, that I, I'm, I'm sort of lucky to have. Um, and thirdly, yeah, just, that's, just, that's huge. just sort of confidence as well. Um, you know, the reality is that I do have, I think, like sort of 600,000 followers or something. And that means that you feel less vulnerable expressing a viewpoint that might be contrary because there's an element of sort of benefit of the doubt that you'll get um, and sort of reassurance and people just correcting you nicely if you say something stupid. Um, so right. Right. <laughs> they kind of have to come to you politely instead of just bashing Yeah, you. <laughs> I mean, they don't all, but um, there's a degree of, of kind of um, gravitas, I guess, that you get a little bit of. Although, I mean, on the internet, it's kind of brutal anyway. Um, but more than anything else, you, you just, you know, you get quite a lot of validation from the things that seem to be successful and seem to um, be interesting to people. And that gives you the confidence to express viewpoints that other people might not want to say. So I can say things like millennials, what a completely stupid um, principle that is. Um, and I think a lot of people would be thinking the same stuff, but they wouldn't necessarily have the balls to say that out loud. Right. Yeah. That the blowback could be bad. Yeah. Um, if we, if we decry the cult of the millennial, geez, they're, <laughs> they're killing everything, Tom. They don't eat and they don't yeah. they do avocado toast and it's true. Just live at home, I guess. They don't have money. Yeah. Don't all pay. 80 million of them. They're all the same person. They don't own anything either. So nothing exists in the no, world anymore. Of course not. <laughs> no, they rent <laughs> drills. For don't you read? Hey, um, so going, I want to actually segue from what you were just saying about confidence and access uh how did that affect editing then so you turned in a draft and you got feedback from editors you know on the publishing side who have a lot of experience with these kinds of books and uh particularly your publisher does a lot of kind of business books so they've seen a lot of these uh at kogan page how did you process that was the was the feedback helpful was it did it (laughs) I know, this is kind of weird to say, but did it hurt your feelings or did, were you like, ah, shit, what do, how do I rewrite this yeah. thing? Or was, was it pretty much? Um, either they're not very good at their jobs or I did a good job of writing it or they felt like they couldn't tell me off. But generally speaking, uh, pretty much everything I ever wrote, they were like, great stuff. You know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, so I don't know what that means. I mean, maybe they were just being nice to me, but um, it, it tended to be, um, you know, it was not like Simon Cowell on The X Factor or whatever show he's on. It was it was like the sort of maternal, you know, what's sort of Ozzy Osbourne's, um, you know, wife. It was like that sort of stuff. Sure. Yeah, it was sort of like, oh, you're lovely. Keep on doing this stuff. You know, you've got a great voice. Um, that was that was the sort of metaphor for how they treated my stuff. They obviously, you know, towards the end, they were like, we need more proof here, or did you really mean to say that, or don't swear, or you know you need more evidence here there was there was it was very much shaping rather than um fighting so it was just kind of steering it and helping you get get it sharper more yeah than anything else. pretty much yeah i'm not so you didn't cry at all is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, uh i'm trying to think about <laughs> there, there actually were times when i cried 
Um, but that's it's it can be <laughs> it's just really hard to get it out, and you'd just be really tired and jet lagged, and you'd be in a hotel in Colombia, and you're like, oh, I could be out in a bar drinking mojitos right now, and instead I'm in a Sheraton, um, you know, writing about blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> Although Sheraton is the number one brand for writing about blockchain, I think we all agree. There's something about Tom. Do you? Yeah, yeah. Something about the Sheraton that really brings out that blockchain <laughs> yes. goodness. Yeah. Not so much cryptocurrency, though. Curiously, no, I'm more of a Hilton guy for I was that. Say Hilton's great for for cryptocurrencies, definitely. Uh, so then we move on to promotion, and that is the next kind of, oh shit, I didn't realize I was going to have to do all of this, but you already were out speaking and you were already out writing, uh, and, and doing kind of, you know, being Tom and promoting Zenith. So how did you, how is it different? Is it different or is it just amplified or is it just Um, now I'm talking about this subject and. Well, I haven't done that much of it, to be honest. Um, like I've got, um, sort of people that are helping me out a little bit and they're sort of lining up sort of, um, interviews and stuff. Um, that's great. Oh, that's great. yeah, so they're kind of doing it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I don't really want to be the person that's sort of driving it because I feel a bit, I feel a bit like if this is good, then, uh, the world should figure out a way for it to succeed. You know, like I think, I think the sort of, uh, the environment of success is more democratic than before. The reality is that this is for sale in, in most places that people might want to buy it. So I kind of feel a bit like they should just let people read the book. And if they think it's good, they'll tell their friends. And if their friends like it, they'll buy some for the company they work at. So m- maybe I'm being yeah. sort of stupid or lazy um, or giving up. No, that is, that's a very Seth Godin uh, philosophy yeah. that, you're, that you're espousing. I also, I mean, it's maybe hard to argue with that guy. If the book's terrible, then, um, then it shouldn't do very well. And like, it shouldn't waste people's time. Um, so I kind of, I feel like it's my job to orchestrate an environment where enough people have got a decent chance of hearing about it, um, and to do a little bit of retweeting here and there, but it's not my job to sort of like try and double down on something if it's not really going to change the world. Well, yeah. And it's how much, it's not your full-time job. It's, it's not even a really, a. it's kind of like a side project of here's some thoughts I have. Yeah. So how much energy can you really put into it? Yeah. You want the thing to be successful, but but I, I share your approach. If people like it, they'll tell somebody. And if the, if it's not that good, then it'll just quietly disappear. And, and that's okay. Yeah, too. I think so. <laughs> better than better than getting bashed online with, you know, one star reviews <laughs> and people telling you you're the worst thing that yeah. ever happened. No, it's true. It's true. I don't know. I think um, as long as it has a chance to succeed, that's the main thing. All right, I'm going to ask you now. Uh, this is my last question, okay. but I'm going to ask you now on the record. You can change your mind later, but on the record today, do you think you're going to write another book? Uh, maybe. Um, maybe. What kind of answer is that? I need a binary yes or no. Come on. Ah, <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> yes, probably. Uh, I mean, when I do you have do you have the idea uh, already, or just the i just the rhythm of it? You kind of feel like you got no, the rhythm. Definitely of it. You know how to I think it. it's um. Yeah, it's a bit like simulation theory where if you think that we can only be the only possible species on the only planet, like it's almost quite arrogant to suggest that there's not another way for life to exist anywhere else. And I think as a 38-year-old that plans on having quite a lively brain for quite a long time, I think if I think about it in terms of probability, it, it's quite unlikely that there's not going to be a point at some point in my life again where, um, I'd, you know, where I think I've got nothing to say. So I think I'll probably write another thing of, of some sort. Uh, I've got no idea what it'd be on. 
Uh, it might be, I feel like writing like a coffee table book about like reception areas in offices and what that says about the business. Um, or just a book about um, really fun bars to go to. So it might just be a book about something completely different. Um, I, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly, um, it's notable that the moment that I finished the book, I definitely said to myself, I'm never, ever going to do that again. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. what I was, that's what yeah. I was looking for. And then, and it's quite nice in a way to sort of be asked to speak about it at events. And it's quite nice to, um, to sort of have a chance to start conversations with people. Um, and I'm lucky in the moment and I do quite a lot of writing on other platforms anyway, and I go on TV sometimes. Um, but it, it's certainly quite likely to be the case that in a few years time, I get a bit itchy again, I think. Yeah. When, so eventually over time you figure it'll come back and maybe you'll write a, an erotic thriller. Is that, <laughs> is that something that you have in your future? I would put money on that. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Everybody stand by for Tom Goodwin's. <laughs> erotic thriller we'll come up with a title on twitter let's together do let's do it yeah <laughs> all right well this has been awesome i want to get you off and running before you're i'm sure you have a next yeah, meeting that's yeah. probably pacing around outside bit, your yeah. door <laughs> yeah thank you very much for making time and um this has been wonderful to finally talk in person or semi in person and uh beers when i'm when that i'm in new great. york in uh, june that sounds great it's been very good to be on here thanks adam <laughs>